0: Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, I am so thrilled to introduce you one of my very favorite podcast hosts, D.S. Moss, fellow veteran, humanist, and non-theist chaplain in progress, which we'll talk about in a bit, and the host of the podcast, Adventures of Memento Mori. Uh, Thank you so, so much, D.S., for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's nice to meet you.
0: So as we were discussing before, I have been listening to several of your episodes in preparation of this. I've heard them all when they were going on in the last several years, but uh, as we'll talk about in a bit too, your series has ended. So I've gone back and listened to several of the episodes. And in one of the episodes, you had mentioned that you have a lot of conversations about death. And I realize I have conversations about death every single day. I will talk about death with anybody that will listen to me, frankly, but a lot of the conversations do have to do with people that are imminently facing that, whereas your people are generally not imminently facing that or terminal. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about those conversations and how you feel about them.
1: Yeah, like you, I can have these conversations all day long, (laughs) and I also like to think about death in terms of like the breadth of the types of conversations that we can have about about what it means and and i use the term cosmos of death because that can be like very existential it can be very logistic it can be very spiritual and so there's just a lot to unpack with this topic of you know death and i also I, i came to learn throughout the process or throughout doing this podcast that that it is death yes but it all is also about this idea of finitude right Mm -hmm. about the end Mm -hmm. um and that all this wrapped up into that so uh, my experience has been beginning the show i went into it thinking that death was this taboo topic what i learned
0: kind of is sometimes
1: (laughs) i would i would say that it is less taboo and more of the fact of uneducated ways in which to do it. I don't think necessarily there is, well, I mean, fear is all wrapped up into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it is is something that is so uncomfortable that it is just something that as a society or culture that we just um, are prohibited from talking about it, I think it's one, we just don't understand the way that fear affects us. And two, we don't have the equipment um, through like just basic communication skills. To, to find ways in which to talk about it. And that's not a knock on anybody because it's because we're predisposed as sentient beings that want to procreate and survive, that we don't dwell on our you know imminent end, right? <laughs> it's not a very healthy way to be a species on a on a planet that requires you to survive, right? So it makes sense. Um, but now that we actually have consciousness and we can we can actually contemplate. Um, and try to think about how we will not exist, which is in and of itself is a is a hard thing to do, right? The brain that only knows consciousness and being is trying to comprehend unbeing, right? <laughs> right. So that's like a weird thing to get into, anyway. And and so I so I think it's maybe it's taboo, but but I think it's it's just less ability to comprehend and to communicate.
0: Those are fair arguments. If I can, yes and you. Uh, In my experience in hospice, there definitely are cultures that absolutely don't and will not talk about it for fear of actually bringing death on faster, for example. Mm -hmm. And there may be, and it may be because they're actually facing death that I find that people are not comfortable about it because they haven't started having the conversation in our culture because we just don't talk about it not that we can't but we just haven't and don't it's not normalized yet hopefully someday um but because it is right in their face at this point in hospice that now they don't necessarily now they're more uncomfortable talking about it whereas a lot of your episodes that have been so fabulous is is how to ease people into those conversations when they're not imminently facing that
1: yeah i i love that the word choice you use of like it's not normalized. Yeah, right, I think normalizing the conversations is, is where we need to get to. You know, it's also interesting too, and, and I'll lean on you because this is, you know, this is your your life, I'm just a curious student of it all, but what I've also learned too is that in the realm of of thinking about and having conversations around death or mortality, there are like three categories, right? There's like the death of the other, which is typically someone that is close to us a loved one right yeah. which mm-hmm. then we talked about things of love grief and all of that goes into that and and then there's actually then there's the whole another subject of of death of one oneself <laughs> yes well that's a whole nother ball of wax right which i don't know if it's easier or harder than the death of other it's just different
0: <laughs> yeah
1: right and then, there's, and then there's, which is quite existential. And then there's, I think something more broad, right? Is It's almost not quite metaphysical, but it is sort of metaphysical. It is like what happens before and after or nothingness, which is, um, I think if you do it like a, a death Venn diagram, right, That that's like the big one. And then like the death of other and death of self is kind of fits in there nicely as well. So I think it, it also, from my experience, the way to get in these conversations kind of depends on which of those quadrants, not quadrants, which of those segments you're actually talking about. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And how much you've had experience. I think I find that people have had that have had experience of the death of a loved one or someone close to them earlier on in life actually makes it easier to accept or talk about later on. Whereas people that have been, I guess, fortunate enough uh, to not have someone close to them pass away until they're in their fifties or sixties, that is really hard. Especially when we haven't been normalizing things before that.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's the sad rub, right? Is that you don't wish that anybody experiences to any severe degree when they're young, mm-hmm. right? We want everybody and their families to to live as full of life as they as they can can. Yet those that that may have more experience with it and and not always, right? It doesn't mean that just because you have experience with it, you, you have a, you've come to terms in in a better way than someone else. That's, that's not, that's not exact arithmetic, but yeah, but we need to find a middle ground. We need to find a middle ground as a, right. As a community. I think we talk about like, I get asked a question a lot about sort of America and like Western ideas about how culturally we talk about death or accept death. But I, I even think that's like too broad, right? I think there's a middle ground between like families
0: mm-hmm.
1: and culture, which is more like community. And you know, I don't ultimately don't, don't have a solution for how we get to 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 be more community-oriented in our normalizing of, of death and conversations around death. But I do think there is. It is, you know, stepwise, right? It goes with one's own self, one's family, and then one's immediate community. And then we can talk about culture. I mean, what is American culture anyway, right? Like, does America have a problem with death or talking about death? Yes, but not like all Americans, right? Right. Like it, it, that's just- Obviously we don't.
0: (laughs) We don't. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I wanna pull it back just a minute um, so I don't forget to ask. I noticed that the tagline of your podcast has changed a little bit. I think now it's a skeptics guide for learning to live by remembering to die. You started out by saying a practical guide and then it turned into a cynical guide. So I'm just wondering what spawned those changes.
1: It's all provisional Haley. (laughs) The more you learn, the more you realize that um, you didn't know things. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, I think the hypothesis is still the same, right? So the idea of the show is that if one could accept on a very sort of intellectual perspective, right? If yeah. one was to be able to accept one's finitude or mortality, then thus that should allow you to live a more meaningful life. It should be the, the, the path in which you can create meaning right mm-hmm. insert any instagram platitude here so so, so the test was is, is like is that true
0: yeah
1: is that possible um and so that was kind of the adventure that, that I took and you know i i was I, I was born in an existential crisis so this always was something that i wanted to explore anyway you know I, I like to say instead when i was born instead of coming out of the womb crying wah, i came out crying why so <laughs> So it's been like, it's, it's always been a great curiosity to me in, in many forms. And then, you know, the more I learned in the show, I, I found that, that there wasn't necessarily a practical guide, right? There aren't necessarily steps in a very neat package that you can be like, if you do this, then this will be the outcome, right? Because we live at a very uh, outcome-oriented era in, now I will say, America. In America, culture is that we're, you know, we're very success oriented, and success orientation has many, many forms. And one of those those forms is like we, we expect all of these quick fix formulas, right? And so that's kind of where I started from, uh, not realizing that it's that it's never that neat.
0: That sounds like every definition of grief and bereavement that we have. Right. That there are not, I mean, five steps is a whole nother conversation of how they don't exist, but there are not steps of grief or bereavement that you vacillate everywhere and it's all over the place and never really ends it's always a work in progress.
1: yeah and and provisional right like yeah you things things change the, the way you you feel more you feel less you learn more yeah it's not it's not linear always. Yeah, or maybe it's hardly linear.
0: Hardly, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then I went to like a, a cynic's guide uh, because I, I think I, I wanted to be a cynic, right? Like I wanted, you know, I I my degree, my degrees in film, and it was like a minor in screenwriting, and I wanted to be like the Bukowski, right? I wanted to have some sort of drinking problem. And I wanted to stay up late, right? And I, I wanted to get this like this beautiful piece of art that only that only shows itself like at five in the morning after a bender, right? But then I realized that and so I think being a, a cynic was part of this sort of like idealized version of oneself, which is kind of weird to say, like I want to be <laughs> a, a cynic. Um, but I'm not. I'm not, I'm really a closet optimist. Um and I like a full night's sleep. And I like getting up early in the morning and not having a hangover. <laughs>
0: yeah, that does help.
1: <laughs> so, so then, so then, yeah. So I changed it from that. And and who wants to listen to a cynic anyway, right? Like that's as a tagline. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, I, so I eventually landed on skeptic, which I am a skeptic. I think skepticism is not a negative term at all. I think skepticism is a great tool. Through which to navigate life, and to always be asking questions, following your curiosity. And again, just go back to this idea of um, it being provisional. Like, I, I'm totally, I'm a person that's totally okay with saying that I was wrong ten years ago, and that I was wrong yesterday, and that I was wrong this morning. Right? Like, I, I made decisions and said things on what I knew at the time, and. That doesn't mean that I always knew that a lot when I said things.
0: Two things we need to normalize the most death and apologizing.
1: I hear, how hear. much
0: of a better world would we have if those two things were normalized?
1: Yeah. It's like, oh shit, I was wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's,
0: that's apparently that's hard. <laughs> so you did your show 2015 to 2021. You had a couple episodes that looked like they were outside of the actual series and (laughs) there definitely are more episodes that I specifically want to ask you about and I I first selfishly want to know are you going to ever do more series or episodes is that ever in the possibility I
1: would say that I just can't help myself yes (laughs) there are there are some other you know there's some things cooking so
0: all right all right I'll be on the lookout. The
1: the inside scoop here. (laughs) Yes. There are things cooking.
0: (laughs) Very exciting. Very exciting. And then my other one, I actually was going to leave it for later, but now I kind of want to know. Some of the last episodes you did were still fairly early on in the pandemic, and they were pretty optimistic. As you said, you're a closet optimist. Living in New York, kind of one of the main epicenters, as we are over here in Washington, Are you as optimistic now as you were then? And or how are you feeling about the state of the world slash America in this pandemic? (laughs) That's hard. I know that's a big question.
1: Oh, it's so hard. How to answer this? I would say I I still am optimistic. Now, let me back up, because I don't know if I mean that.
0: (laughs) We can change our minds. Remember, you don't have to stick with this answer forever. That's right.
1: Yeah, I just gave myself an out to to backtrack. No, I, I, I will say one thing that concerns me the most is the idea of getting back to normal. Because I always like to remind people normal is what got us here in the first place. So if we're not thinking hard and if we're not really taking some stock in what just happened over the last 24 months plus, then it's all for naught and we cannot let this be all for naught and so like how are we individually right i think Mm -hmm. it starts there always starts there it's like how are we changing things for for the better yeah and what concerns me is that at least from what i have seen that's not happening on a scale that You know, I I guess maybe personally I would have hoped to have liked it seen, right? Like in in New York, which I always have like a love-hate relationship with New York. But but one of the things about coming out of this, it happened during the summer last year. It's happening now that like today was a beautiful day and people just love to get outside. And part of their like First Amendment rights is like, I want brunch. (laughs) Like I have a right to eat in a restaurant whenever I want to. And so, you know, restaurants are now heaving. Like, even before the pandemic, at least in my neighborhood, you didn't necessarily always have to have a reservation. Now you have to book three weeks out. Wow. Because everything is just crowded. And, you know, it's proof of facts, but that's, yeah, it feels like that feels a bit like theater anyway. Um, like, you can walk into a restaurant with a mask, but then you take it off and, then you, you don't like put it back on immediately. It's like, it's. I'm sort of going on a little bit of a, a tangent. I, I do feel optimistic about like health and maybe where we are scientifically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think I, I'm, I'm quite, you know, despite what we see in the news and reports, I, I'm quite optimistic about being ready for the next one. From from a scientific perspective, right? From a an individual responsibility perspective, I'm not quite as optimistic. So yeah, it's 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 a it's a funny one. Like I'm not I'm not existentially worried. Mm-hmm. I'm just like humanity worried.
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally feel you. And also about going out into public just this week is really the first week I've had a couple of things that I've gone out into public to do. And not only for my own health and safety and my family's, but my patients, I am exceedingly cautious in making choices for where I'm going and where I'm getting exposed. And the two events that I went to were also, you know, wear a mask, show proof of vaccination or negative test. And I, I made the risk analysis choice to go to them. And also, I I still struggle with that. You, you know, was that the right decision? I know we're not over this. We are past 900,000 deaths. It's it's a lot. And, you know, in my work, we have to serve people that have all different kinds of views, whether they're vaccinated or not, whether they're COVID positive or not. And it's a daily struggle for me to remain optimistic, for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I, I hear you there, particularly because you are you're working so closely with you know people in vulnerable states of health right so yeah. you sort of amongst a cohort of other healthcare workers or other support workers have to be like have to do extra math in <laughs> in in their lives right like you have it's yeah. it's even it's even harder outside of just being in areas of exposure
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's just a lot more things to consider and, and way that some people get to. And, and, and by the way, like I want people to enjoy their lives, right? I want people to have mimosas. I, I, <laughs> I I'm not begrudging anybody having a good time. I just, yeah. I just want us to hopefully we've reflected on yeah. who we are as a society.
0: I hope so I do have to keep reminding myself of the old you know progress moves upwards it's just very slow and I know there's a saying for that I just can't think of it right now but yeah I I do remind myself that we're going in the right direction in the larger picture of things but in the thick of it, it doesn't feel like that sometimes right mm-hmm. so speaking of some amazing episodes uh, that you did and I want to bring it back to the chaplain. if that's okay if you're comfortable talking about that since you mentioned it on your podcast yeah one of your very your very last podcast remember to die was talking about what your plans were and it looks like you're still pursuing that so how is that going and what do you plan to do with that
1: yeah I so I just finished last week maybe two weeks ago I just finished my first unit of CPE nice at Bellevue Hospital, and for those listening, CPE is clinical pastoral education, Uh and you need four units in total to be a board-certified chaplain, which is like a million hours. But but yeah, so that was great, especially being at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which is uh, so mind-blowingly educational that it was an amazing experience. And yeah, I went to I went to Meadville Lombard Theological School as a humanist. It was the first, uh, I was the, like student zero in a in a humanist track. So the Humanist Association and uh, American Humanist Association and Meadville had a collaboration. Uh, I was a student. I'm not sure if that collaboration is still active. So I may have been the last student as well. <laughs> but yeah, so I just need to, to write uh my thesis which i keep putting off and then i will thank you i will graduate from seminary school nice which is if you would have said that to me three years ago i would have (laughs) looked at you like you were uh, from another planet and yeah it's been it's been fascinating it's been fascinating on my understanding of what spirituality means Mm uh to me and um how i think i can support other people's in you know in a hospital setting or in a spiritual or pastoral care setting and and i you know i don't know what the future uh, is going to look like i you know i'm not like being board certified as a chaplain is, is not a carrot for me i don't necessarily need that i do want to if and when I do uh, my second unit of CPE, I would I would love to do it in a hospice setting.
0: Come to Washington.
1: I would love it. <laughs> and, and by the way, like social workers, I've learned, well, I think everybody in the hospital is amazing, by the way, shout out to That's everybody that, that works in, in a healthcare hospital setting. And I guess I really didn't know what social workers did, which from my experience or at least <laughs> my perspective is a lot. <laughs>
0: most people don't
1: <laughs> yeah um so so most thank people you hear
0: social work and they just think like child welfare that's usually the most common
1: job yeah. that they hear so yeah i i have much admiration for for you and your work thank you so yeah so that's uh i i don't know i don't know but it and this is the first time in my life that I have been sincerely, absolutely okay with not having any idea of what what's going to happen next. Nice. I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a five year plan. I, I barely have a five month plan, let <laughs> alone a five week plan. So, you know, I, I'm I'm trusting. You know, I, I'm just trusting where my heart and curiosity uh, is is taking me, and, and so far in this, again, who would have thunk it? I start doing something about death. And looking back, it's kind of like, it it makes total sense. But yeah, I'm just living.
0: I think that's a great segue since um, you bring up being able to let go of a plan, which is an amazing thing to be able to do, is some of your episodes. And specifically, the one I listened to today uh, was the psychedelic episode where you very bravely tried ayahuasca multiple times
1: yeah
0: so uh wow first of all people go back and regardless go back and listen to all the episodes because they're all amazing i don't know if you had a chance to look at any of my episodes i did we're doing we're starting a pilot program with five hospices around the country for ketamine assisted therapy in people with one year or less to live and via that pilot study, we have to do our own experiential. And so I was able to try ketamine twice, which is not anything like ayahuasca. I am a super huge, not fan of vomiting. So um, what was it that made you choose that particular psychedelic? And also, do you think that had something to do with you being able to live Kind of bringing it back to what you're just saying in the moment without having a long plan and no anxiety about that.
1: I, I would say it's, it was definitely influential. And one of the, you know, in the episodes, I have this throughout the podcast, I have a life coach whose name is Devin. My name is Devin. So it's like a weird thing, but Devin, a life coach, guided me through my process. And one of the things that he would always say, which I agree, and I would repeat to other people, that if they were to ever to ask me um, for advice about this topic, is like it doesn't do the work for you. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not a magic pill. Yeah, you still have to do all of the work. It just maybe clears uh, the pathway for that work, and so, so yeah. But without without that experience who knows if I would be here now, in in sort of the, this, the same perspective. Um, and, and it was like, it feels, looking back, it feels like the right things happened in the right order. Hmm. You know, again, not to cont- contradict myself earlier about saying, you know, some things just aren't linear, but this felt very exponential maybe. And why I did ayahuasca, it had always been something that, that was floating around. Like the first time I had really heard about ayahuasca was like in 2011. I had a friend that did it at the same place at the Temple of Way of Light. But it was my first. I did, I did peyote like two years prior to ayahuasca on a spirit walk out in the desert, which wasn't. It was revealing, but not nearly like ayahuasca was.
0: Was it worth all the vomiting? <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and i've, I've actually gone back and, and done more so
0: wow okay yeah okay
1: it's a different type of vomiting
0: oh you say
1: yeah it's not like there's like i should not have had that last manhattan vomiting and then there's the like your body or the medicine wants you to purge some things
0: I mean, that definitely does happen with people taking ketamine. So I'm familiar with that concept of being able to purge out what you don't need. I was, I was able to avoid that, but it was not without difficulty. And, um, I really hate it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's, it's, yeah, that's understand. Like sometimes vomiting is just really a horrible experience.
0: Yeah. Uh, some of the other episodes, another episode that you did that was that really stuck with me. I didn't even I didn't have to listen to it again because it's still with me uh, was the one that you talked about pet loss and specifically in that you did your own journey of your own pet loss, um which I thought was just really beautiful and meaningful. Uh, do you have any thoughts now looking back on that episode? Have you had more pets since then? I guess that's one question.
1: no, it and, and I'm looking. Instagram in my direct messages because I have a, a friend who has a friend who just wrote a book about pet mourning. And I was hoping to have the name of that book so I could plug it here, but I don't have it. And maybe we can follow up and I'll, I'll give it to you. No, I mean, thanks for bringing that up because it's, a, it's one that it was really hard to do the voiceover for. I bet. Like even talking about it now, I'm, I'm feeling the feels.
0: I'm feeling the feels and it wasn't my
1: pet. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, for all the reasons that we talked about in the podcast, it's, it's, it's just very confrontational in the sense that, you know, we're just so responsible for these creatures who are actually, you know, extensions of our heart. Mm -hmm. And then we have to make the call. The title of the episode is making the call. And so there's a lot that goes into that. Like I know a lot of people that at, at certain points, like, don't know when or know when, but don't admit when that call is, and end up spending thousands and thousands of dollars at the very end of the of the pet's life to prolong it,
0: mm-hmm. maybe
1: a, a week or or not even at all. And, and by the way, do do all that you can to to give that pet the best life and best, best death is possible but it's but it's it's challenging and, and that's something too that i don't think we talk about no you know it's it's rough right because i i had a friend tell me it's like it's, it's part of it's part of the contract of having a pet like we don't think yeah. about it and maybe nor should we when we have a cute little kitten think about like well most likely i'm gonna outlive you and yeah. it's gonna shatter my heart
0: mm-hmm.
1: but in you know that that is not only a contract of having a pet, but that's a contract of life. And yeah. um yeah, it, I have not since got got another pet. I I'm not against the idea. It just hasn't. Um I'm leaving it up to to fate. I guess I don't I, I don't need to. I think it's you know, this probably like a double statement. I don't feel like I need to plug that gap Mm -hmm. um in my heart but i'm also pretty fearful that if i get another dog it's not going to live up to the expectations and you know what i mean it's like i had i had the one right like i had the most amazing brilliant athletic good-looking not that those are all qualities that we have to admire but and maybe that's all projection but like he (laughs) was he was perfect for me and to me and so that, I, so maybe I have a little bit of fear of, like, I, I you know, I, I'm replacing them. These are just so things that, like, again, it's been like, boy, three years now, yeah. And I still like sort of think about these things and stumble and mumble and, you know, it's, it's hard. I actually, I was walking with my girlfriend earlier today, and she, we we're walking past the park that we used to always go to. What's the question she asked me? She asked me something about dogs in new york right which is a whole category of, <laughs> of nuttiness and fun and then i just started talking started talking about you know my guy and she asked how long it had been since he since he died and i was like well, i guess probably three years you know and it's a uh, yeah it's it's interesting and i don't know if like I think we all know, right? All of us that have pets and have lost pets, we we know how special they are. And so I don't get like, I don't get really any thoughts about people that don't understand the relationship. Um, if people don't understand the the grief that comes with that relationship, you know, people are like, well, they're not, well, they're not human. like I don't even, like whatever i don't even need to engage in the conversation because if you don't already understand then there's nothing i'm going to say that's going to make you understand and it's, i don't really then care to even talk about it with you
0: yeah i i'm super interested to hear what your friend's book is called and to read it um, i interviewed john Katz who did a book called going home finding peace after pets die and i used that because in hospice, I am a case social worker out in the field, but I also handle the pet loss side of our bereavement program. And so when that gets triaged through the bereavement, they will send them to me if it's specifically pets. And what I found was that people that were really struggling, and of course, pet loss is disenfranchised, like you're talking about, people that don't understand will never probably understand in a similar way to the culture of the military. <laughs> if you if you haven't experienced that, you there's really no way to explain it to a full extent. But what I find as I go through the grief with people of a pet that they feel like has been, they, they have grieved too hard or too long. There's no such thing, obviously. There's no time limit on grief. But in a way that makes them dysfunctional and they feel like they need to find a way to be able to move on, that there's some trauma that happened in the, in the span of that pet's life. I feel like I need to write a book about this myself. Every single time someone that has has come my way about that, something large happened in the life of that pet. And it made it so much harder when that pet died, regardless of how the pet died, whether it was the difficulty of choosing euthanasia, whether it was an accident, um, or any other you know an illness anything like that no matter how that pet dies no matter how long they had the pet whether it was three years or 20 years every single time someone has had in their life a really big significant event happen that they either didn't deal with at the time or it's bringing it back up
1: that's interesting i'd read that book
0: yeah (laughs) thank you
1: you're right i'd read that book
0: it's it's in my mind it's in there because it's it has come up every time and when i've brought it up now that i've done this so many times as i'm going through it with people um it really resonates so i would suggest that too but also i'm looking forward to reading that other book because every little bit of information i can get i'm happy to get it and spread it along
1: yeah I'll, I'll let you know um and you said the other book is john katz is the author
0: yeah ironically katz he was talking about dogs um K-A-T-Z. and it's called going home Finding."
1: peace when pets die i wish i would have had that when i was doing the episode because i actually found it I, I found somebody that does it a, a therapist in new york mm-hmm. but she's like she was like the only person that i found and i'm sure that maybe i just wasn't i don't know but it, it was not a a common thing that was that was out there
0: mm-hmm. it's really not it's really not. There's a whole long list of things that are disenfranchised grief, and that's definitely one of them. So, yeah, that that episode meant a lot, is
1: my point. Oh, and <laughs> four, so, four so
0: you, that you did. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Thank you. That was, yeah, that was one that was, yeah, super near and dear to my heart. So, do you have pets?
0: Several. Uh, right. Currently, I have a dog, three cats, and what's left of five hospice koi. That I rehomed, so
1: hospice coy.
0: Yeah, they're they're in the twilight of their life when I got them, and I was rehoming them for some a different family that was going to be facing their own mortality. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so still have pets. I've you know had pets all my life. Been through several different versions of how I've had pets, and. That definitely is a good segue into another episode you had, which was uh, really meaningful, which was talking about eating what you hunt. Yeah. That was a two-parter, as two-parter. I recall.
1: Two-parter. Yeah, it was Stephen Renella.
0: Yeah, I um, I grew up with rabbits and chickens and turkeys and pigs on a farm that, you know, a very small farm. We also had pets, but, and I never, thankfully, had to do the actual killing of them. Or hunting, um, but I'm not against it, and I really found it an interesting conversation and the way you went through that process and how you looked at it.
1: It's it's a it's a really challenging topic. Like that wasn't meant to be a, a two part episode, but the more the more you dig, I think the more things that you have to face and the more decisions you have to make about what path. You're going to go down, and so you know. Ultimately, what I what I learned is that there was a a guest in the show named Tovar Sorelli, um, and he wrote uh, he wrote a book called The Conscious Carnivore, and he was a vegan that transitioned into being a hunter because he realized after sort of, I think, I don't know how much of a Buddhist he was, or if he just spoke, if he just spoke Buddhist, or if he was <laughs> a practicing, you know, some people just have read the Thich Han books. And, sure. but, but but he did, you know, reference Thich Han in sort of this idea of looking, spending the time to look deeply into something. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the metaphor is like looking at a piece, piece of paper and understanding, the sunlight that grew the tree and the you know the squirrels or the the life that the, the tree housed and all of the tree fed and then the, the people at the mill and so that like you go through something and, and looking deeply into it and i realized for me is that i had not been looking not only deeply i had just not been looking at all about what i was putting into my body and not only what i was i mean i i live fairly healthy so i I, you know i look at labels but that's as deeply as i looked right like (laughs) um but not truly understanding the cost the cost of life Mm -hmm. that it takes to provide calories to provide life right and that's a that gets your head going in circles anyway right with your (laughs) you know if, if you believe like in a benevolent planet where we're all happy like like life needs life mm-hmm. to live mm-hmm. and and it's important since like can we cuss on your show
0: uh, yeah absolutely okay, okay. Yeah,
1: absolutely um, <laughs> absolutely yeah humans i mean humans are fucked up right like we we have created a narrative that we are um, top of the food chain, right? We have extracted ourselves from the natural world. We we use a term of nature of something that we go into, like everything is nature, right? Like we've so excluded ourselves from the planet um, and, and and then we include it as though it is something that's bestowed on us that we have to save. Right, yeah, and yeah. and so, it's just a dysfunctional relationship. I mean, humans have a dysfunctional relationship with many things, but our relationship to food, and our relationship to nature, and our relationship to how we contribute to a symbiotic system, where we have to give as well as take. We're just extractionists, right? all we do is take, 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 <laughs> and and. And what's even more fucked up about that is that we close our eyes into all of the ripples that that has throughout yeah. the rest of, of the life. Yeah. Right. And so, so the, all of that is to say, um, I, I, this is another topic that I, that I'm very passionate about is that, you know, choose, choose how you want to eat and how you want to live. I, I. Support anybody's right to do that, but I also think it's important that that when we make decisions, that they're active decisions, that they're not passive decisions based on a litany of of reasons why we don't make active decisions. And so I think food is very important if we are really serious about all the things that, that we say as a culture now about how we're going to save the planet from ourselves, <laughs> net zero bacteria made straws, all of these things. I think all of that is superficial until we have a conscious, active decision-making process of how we choose to consume, consume in many ways, but to consume in, in food as well. And it's hard, right? It took that, that episode took two years to make. Wow. Because it's not, it's not easy because you think that like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna be vegan, right? And that, and that, as a choice, can be great. And if, and if those that make choices to be to be plant based, that is great too. But but there's an understanding of the, like there's nitrogen made from chicken bones and like all fertilizer. And if you're get it all, it matters where you're getting those strawberries. Mm-hmm. And so just because you've made a choice to be plant based does not mean you get a a badge of eating Um, it's it's better it's certainly better than going and and flippantly buying the cheapest uh, factory farmed beef that you can get or Mm -hmm. ordering like 36 a bucket of 36 chicken wings right it's it's certainly better than that so. um,
0: Which I mean that topic can be its own whole several long series episodes about factory farming and what that does and how what that affects.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's complicated, right? And and it's also like we there's 7 billion people.
0: I was going to say and, you know, not only feeding the planet but socioeconomically what what is the impact of choosing to be more conscious of eating? But I digress. I don't want to get into that cuz I I know we're already almost at an hour and I could talk to you all day about all of these things. Yeah. Each one of them individually. So I just I will save two. I will Pull us back from this deep dive because okay. it definitely could be. Yeah, I love um, that topic. And follow up with two final questions. Uh, number one, in your death over dinner episode, you said at the time you wanted to be remembered for your generosity. And I wondered if that had changed at all.
1: Thank you for that question. That's such a good question. Uh, yes. I still mean that it's like a slight comma in this i think it goes to, into maybe a little bit more of the the conversation that was happening at the dinner at the time was about legacy
0: mm-hmm.
1: i just want to be generous whether or not i'm remembered for being generous
0: that's amazing <laughs> and my last question is more of an asking of permission so I've been doing my podcast for about two years now, and every episode, I end with saying, and and I, I have a very similar um, idea in mind of yours as far as the remembering how to you know how do you live while remembering to die, is really a mantra that I hadn't put words to before, and I do talk about many other things. Yours was much more focused, and I love it for that, uh, because I expand out to things that also involve social work and other things like that. Uh, but but ultimately the reason the podcast is called Someday We'll All Be Dead is because I want to explore all of these things and how do we make our lives better uh, or accept things or challenge our thinking because someday we're going to all be dead and we don't know what's going to happen. And so I wondered if I might, and it's okay if you say no, if I might incorporate into a tagline that I may be able to use ongoing now instead of trying to come up with one for each episode, which is exhausting, frankly is to maybe say, remember to live, because someday we'll all be dead. Because that really is something that I try to incorporate in all of my talks, whether we're talking about death and dying, or whether I'm talking about pet loss, or um, random things like my favorite movies, I want people to find the joy in life, because we're facing mortality. What do you think?
1: Yes and yes and yes, of yes. course. Like, like I don't have, like I didn't come up with the idea, right? Like, you know, it's also helpful to think of, uh, you know, back when Dead Poet Society came out, there was like hair salons called Carpe Diem. There was like Carpe <laughs> Diem flavored ice cream. Like the world had fucking Carpe Diem itself up into a frenzy. And I and I think more importantly, we need to append that with "memento mori carpe diem," right? Remember, you will die, so seize the day. That's the complete puzzle piece, yes. right? One does not exist without the other. So, so absolutely promote that idea. Use it. Use it. Use it. Use it. Yeah, because that's that's right. If we're gonna if we're gonna normalize it yeah um, like we talked about earlier we we have to make we have to make meaning out of it and the way to do that is like regardless and we can have a whole other conversation about like what happens after and before and metaphysics and all the fun stuff as a non-theist that i love to talk about and spirituality putting all of that aside what we do know is that this corporal form will be extinguished and not only that is that all that all that comes with it and all that we leave behind. And so it is important whether or not this is all the dream, whether or not this is the matrix, whether or <laughs> not this is, you know, a we're going to a Bardo next or we're ascending into the heavens, don't matter, right? Like this is meaningful and we must act like it's meaningful and make meaning of it. And, and our absolute... Impermanence is the best tool to be like and it's hard right it's like it's easier said than done, I think I think there's again it's coming back to the brain is like the brain. wants to survive and the brain doesn't understand its own non existence right, I mean like intellectually we get it but but embodied. We don't get it because we don't want to get it right, but, but I yes. think it, you know it is a. there's a sweet spot right there's there's a sweet spot of like not being just anxiety inducing right we don't want us to think about death so much when we don't get out of bed
0: yes
1: um we want to be able to get out of bed and and you know make sure to the best we can don't let perfection get in the way of actually progress but doing the best we can and being being the best we can be and letting that actually translate into this idea of community you know, because none of us, uh, it means nothing without the other person, um, involved. So that's, that sounded a bit preachy, but, um, (laughs) you are going to be a chaplain. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness. I love every bit of this conversation. As I said, I could talk to you for hours on end about all things, death and dying and existentialism and every other thing. Um, thank you DS so much for coming on the podcast. Please, everyone, go and listen to The Adventures of Memento Mori. Find him on Twitter or on Instagram or on YouTube or on the websites. Remember to die. And as I will now say from now on and forever, remember to live because someday we'll all be dead.